Hello and welcome to the Wholehearted Healer Podcast. My name is Dr. Avine Banish and I will be your host. This is the weekly podcast that helps women pause in their busy lives, drop into the heart, and remember their next right step. I am so happy that you're here. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm so grateful that you have shown up, and I want to invite you to rate and review this podcast, share it with your friends so that others may find it. This week, I had a wonderful conversation with Perdita Finn. Perdita is a teacher and an author, a mother, um, a wisdom keeper, I believe. She and her husband are the founders of The Way of the Rose, an international community of friends devoted to the lady by any name you want to call her. They are also the authors of The Way of the Rose, the radical path of the divine feminine hidden in the rosary. Perdita began her career as a writing teacher and trained teachers at Columbia University in helping students free their voices and tell their stories. Creating empowering learning adventures has been her life's work. She has a new book in the works entitled Take Back the Magic, Getting to Know the Dead, which is a love story about the long story of our souls, and it will be published in 2023. In our conversation, we talk about mothering and how mothering in a larger sense may be the balm that is needed to heal the world at the moment. We talk about different perspectives and ways of looking at life to offer comfort right now with all that's going on in the world. Um, and I just found our conversation to be really healing and really, um, it just filled me up. And so I hope it does the same for you. So here's my conversation with Perdita Finn. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the Wholehearted Healer Podcast. My name is Dr. Avine Banish. I'm your host, and you're in for a true treat today. I'm really grateful to have Perdita Finn on as a guest. Perdita is someone who I don't know very well, and yet as I read her writing, I feel as if I've known her for ages. She is an author and a teacher. She is a mother in a lot of different senses of the word, I sense. She has two children on this earth. One of them has been a guest on this podcast, the luminous Sophie Strand. And um, and so I'm just so grateful, Perdita, to have you on today. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here, Avine. Thank you so much for having me on. And, you know, there's so much that I want to talk to you about. I think I, I'm really interested in people who are in this current catastrophe that we're living through, <laughs> um, who I see as able to hold nuance and paradox and opposites and remain what I call like open-hearted, right? So you haven't shut down. You're still open to the questions and potential solutions. And so as I've met you through social media and read your work, you really strike me as someone who is wrestling with that and staying open. And I wonder if you could perhaps just begin with, I don't know if you want to talk about any story or any, any of your past experience that allowed you to stay this way or 
or how, you know, your, your, where you came from, your mm. origin story, where would you like to begin? Well, let me see. I'm trying to think I'm 60 years old. So I've been, you know, six decades on in this lifetime, but I think the emphasis is in this lifetime. And so a question that I've been asking myself for 30 years, my husband and I began asking together over 30 years ago was, we are headed clearly into a climate catastrophe. You know, years ago, we were in the first early days of the internet reading together climate.org and feeling even then like Cassandra's at the gate. Why is no one talking about this? Why is this not the primary spiritual conversation of this moment? We had two young children and we were asking what's going to, you know, where are we going? And so a question I asked myself for a long time is, how do I get sober from this catastrophic, extractive, capitalist patriarchy? What would, what would sobriety from this culture look like? And, and that was a question that, that, you know, I really sat with for a long time. And I will say that I received a lot of guidance from the other side. And, and that guidance has been generous and loving and patient, <laughs> patient with me. But I think ultimately, the sobriety that I have arrived at, and I do feel sober, and that sobriety allows me a lot of freedom and play. And that sobriety is the, what I call the long story of our souls, that we don't have just one life to get it right. We live in what I, uh, patriarchy and civilization have told us a lie. It said, you only have one life. And it's very hard to experience mercy and justice, reunion and love inside a single life. We see so many lives, human lives around us filled with abjection and sorrow. How can we make sense of them? How come bad things happen to good people? But we don't know very much. We live inside a vast darkness of mystery. Most of the universe, most of the cosmos is dark matter. 85% of the cosmos is something that we don't know what it is. <laughs> and that is both our awe and our hope that we're not in charge and that there's a lot of time. And I do believe I have very direct experiences of this. I have a book coming out about this next year that when we can begin to tap into that long story, we begin to feel how much time we have and we begin to tap into the mystery that there's all the time in the world for mercy all the time in the world for love, lifetime after upon lifetime to play together and find each other again and love each other again. And um, years ago, I wrote a book with an extraordinary woman. She was more than a psychic. She was like an oracle. Um, and I found her uh, in the midst. My daughter has a very, very severe illness. And at the time, none of the doctors, she was 18 years old, and I had a child. We were going to New York City to the best diagnosticians. And all they could tell me is something is terribly wrong with your daughter, and we don't know what. And that's that is a mother, and I know your mother is terrified. A child who was bedridden, who is in pain, 
who was in so much pain, she would look at me and say, mommy, how do I get out of my body? Wow. And I didn't know what to do. And I'm a doctor's daughter. I had faith in the medical system. I had faith in modern science. I had faith in, you know, we'll just get the right pill and we'll fix this all up. And that was not happening. And I was at the gym one day and I just sort of collapsed in tears and a lovely older woman, I live in Woodstock, New York, came up to me and said, Perdita, the time has come. You need to go see my psychic. And I said, oh, no, (laughs) I hate Woodstock. Could you tell me your immunologist? Could you tell me your, you know, rheumatologist? (laughs) You're psychic. But I came home and my daughter looked at me and said, Mom, it feels like my bones are made of broken glass. And I know what to do. And nothing. So I found myself walking into this little funky store in Woodstock that was filled with size two dresses and size four shoes, which I think she was just what she wore. And we sold over (laughs) a tiny little, tiny little soul. And she appeared with a shock of purple hair. And she took one look at me and she said, come back, come back. And I didn't know at the time how strange this was. She was, she's a, I ended up writing a book with her called the reluctant psychic because she was not someone who advertised or enjoyed this work. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was unfortunately what she had to surrender to. And she looked at me and she brought through all the dead. She knew my parents. She said, oh, your mother's name was Patricia. And she's got a big white cat and she died in your daughter's room. And she knew everything about my family. And I'd been working with the dead for years, but I'd never realized the dead were real. And it was a kind of turning out of my reality. Mm-hmm. that the invisible world, which I had been sort of exploring, suddenly became more real than what we call this reality. And I became fascinated by her, and I became fascinated by her life and her experiences. And she began to validate all those experiences within me that I had over five decades of life dismissed. And one of the things she said that was so fascinating, she had a real access with her past lives. She told me that when she said, she, I'm always, a, she said, I'm always a psychic and I always hate it, which is very funny. <laughs> and one of the reasons she hated it is because her parents were terrified of her. She saw dead people. She had to teach herself as a five-year-old child to tell the living and the dead apart, mm. how to look for tells to tell who was who. I mean, and her parents were terrified of her and quite cruel to her because of their fear. But she said she remembered her past life. She'd been a little girl in London and she remembered flowered wallpaper. And she remembered her parents holding her in their laps and cuddling her and petting her hair and kissing her and singing these songs to her that she could still sing. And then she remembered at five years old, dying in the Blitz. And the bombs exploding and and seeing her body broken and the soldiers coming and pulling her body out and her parents screaming and wailing. But she didn't see that life as a tragedy. She said that life of that five-year-old little girl was a gift to me because I remember my parents' love. And this life, that love, and those songs have sustained me. What a blessing. So when I... I tell that story because 
We look at a life and we don't know what we're looking at. We don't know the long story. We don't know how things that look, and this of course began to transform my relationship to my daughter's illness mm -hmm. and also my relationship to the situation the planet finds itself in. Because the other long story we have to consider is the long story of this earth through deep time. And I love, you know, what you've sort of highlighted. It's so beautiful. I've had some of those experiences myself. It began for me at age 37 and it really does turn your world inside out. And it, um, but this, you know, what you've highlighted so beautifully about your daughter and about the world is this distinction really between the Western medical idea of cure and healing. Oh, <laughs> I mean, you're a doctor. So, you know, one of the things we began to ask on our journey through the medical system was, is this person a doctor or a healer? Mm -hmm. We wanted healers. Yeah. We met a lot of doctors. Yeah. You know, um, one of the things that you write about and I feel embodies so beautifully that is related to this is this idea of mothering with a capital M. <laughs> There's a quote from your book um, that you wrote with your husband, The Way of the Rose. And I grew up Catholic and fascinated <laughs> with, um, with Our Lady of Fatima. Like, I think I checked that book out of my library um, in grade school 47 times. I was obsessed with her. Um, but the way, you know, that book is so radical. I love it. But you, you write, only a species that abandons earth can destroy the earth. To return to the body is to return to the mother. And so one of the questions I would ask is how, how if we feel as if we're being mothered by the earth, and if we then offer that back and mother, not just our own children, but if we act as stewards or mothers to the earth, how that can heal us, how that can heal humanity at this crux that we're at. I'm going to try to condense this into just a couple minutes and see if I can put 10,000 years of human <laughs> history into a few sentences. One of the things my husband did when we were working on that book is we went to the Dordogne to go look at the cave art. And we went with a paleoanthropologist and went into the caves to look at these extraordinary paintings of animals. You cannot believe how beautiful and anatomically precise and yet imaginatively whimsical they are and how loving. They're not scenes of hunt. They're frequently scenes of pregnant animals surrounded by other animals. There are frequently scenes of children, like there's this incredible scene of this baby woolly mammoth surrounded by all these other loving woolly mammoths, and then all the other animals coming around to protect it and hold it. And so the question I have is what was the experience of these people making this art in a, in a pre-civilized pre culture? What were they saying? They don't have human figures in their art. They have, they, occasionally there's a stick figure, but it's the animals. So what is their experience? And I believe my, and this is again, I'm, I'm, I'm using a lot of shorthand. Tyson Yunkaporta in his book, Sand Talk, he's an Aboriginal elder in Australia. He's written that in his culture, the word for great grandmother is the same word as child. And so this is a people 
who experiences the radical sustainability of lifetimes. Great-grandma dies and is reborn. We're waiting for her rebirth. But that rebirth is not always a singular species. And I believe if you look at the Tataka tales in Buddhism, uh, these are stories of the Buddha being reborn again and again as frequently animals to feed people in need. So there is a hungry hunter in the forest and the Buddha is reborn as a rabbit who throws himself onto the fire to be eaten by that hunter. And he's ready to give his body to be eaten. And we know this in Christianity, but we've forgotten it because wasn't Jesus said, this is my body that is given up for you. That is what all of nature is saying to us. It's not a singularity that Jesus is trying to articulate. It is the absolute radical generosity of this earth, where every plant and every animal is experiencing itself quite literally as our mother, ready to throw itself towards us to feed us. And what would it be? And I think for these people who did this cave art, they knew that sometimes great-grandmother died and was reborn as the deer who walked towards them to feed them. And they knew when they ate that deer that they were not just eating an animal, a thing. They were eating the body of their mother. And they knew that they too were willing to be reborn as that deer to feed their children. If we know, when we tap into the long story of our souls, and doing that really means divesting ourselves of a lot of very insidious patriarchal brainwashing, it takes a long time. But if we do, what we really get to is a place where we experience the lived reality that every soul we meet, every plant soul, every lichen soul, every stone soul has been our mother in this vast epics of deep time. And that we too have been each other's mothers. That what would it mean to show up, male and female, young and old, those with biological children and those without biological children, what would it mean to show up each and every day as each other's mothers? Recognizing each other as each other's children from past lives. You know, that, <clears throat> that view is, first of all, brings tears to my eyes. It's so compelling. And it's such a bomb when I'm getting over COVID. And so I've spent a lot of time kind of inert in the last month, really just kind of, which is unlike me. And, um, and anytime I would turn to the news, which I try not to do too much, but like, I think because I was physically not feeling well, the despair of the world felt even more. And so um, I think we're at this moment that, you know, everywhere we look, there's crisis and there's division and there's, and so it's perhaps only this story, only this long view and this view of mothering, right? Divine feminine returning and, and all of us mothering one another that can save us. It's the only thing. And it's what has always saved us. And even now there are plants desperate and animals desperately trying to mother us and set us right. You know, we were talking at the beginning, even the coronavirus, the fascinatingly named coronavirus, coronas means crown. And as someone who's devoted to 
uh, images of the Madonna and the Divine Feminine, I'm, that crown caught my attention way back in 2019. I said, you know, what's going on here? Mm -hmm. And how is this thing that seems so catastrophic and terrible and has been catastrophic and terrible and has been really painful and upsetting? And yet, how is it trying to mother us? Because mothering, as you're a mother of four teenagers, right? Mothering isn't always soft and pretty. Sometimes mothering is fierce and you're the person who's willing to say the thing that makes everybody upset. Yep. Right. And sometimes you're the person who's willing to say, no, you're staying home and you're staying in your room. And that's what's best. And when you really embody that, we know that, you know, the whole world is mothering us right now. We are the great unmothered species on this earth. And we see this in our addictions. You know, we see this in our loneliness and anxiety. Childhood suicide is skyrocketing. I, I mean, actual biological mothers, I don't think have ever been more stressed, more neglected, more alone, more upset. And my heart goes out to them from the very core of my being. Um, we, we, we need more mothers in the world. We need, we need fathers to be mothers. We need 18 year old young men to become mothers. My daughter has written a book about that. <laughs> and I have, and I have, I must say a 25 year old young man who sees himself as being a mother to the soil, who says, my job is to figure out how to help the soil be fertile again, how to help it regenerate. And, and what would it look like to find out who we are the mothers of and where our mothering is needed? Because we are, we need each other so desperately. And tapping into the mother is also, I feel the medicine that we need to to feel less alone, to feel more oh. connected. You know, one of the things is people have often asked me, how do I bear witness to what's happening in the world? Many of us want to tune out. Yeah. And there's a lot of, you know, what I call white light blindness that wants to imagine everything's going to be just fine. And, you know, I am right now, um, uh, I'm with my dying father-in-law in Alabama and, you know, I, I made the mistake of looking at the EPA report for the river I'm on and looking at the pollution and the despair and the poverty. Um, this is one of the poorest places in America I am right now. And how do we not turn away from what's really happening in the world? How do we find the inner courage and the inner confidence to not be blinded by the light, but to look. Because, you know, in that, I am not a Christian. I'm not any religion. I say I'm trying to be, remember how to be an animal. That's the only thing I am. <laughs> That's the only thing I identify as. And yet I pray the rosary, which I consider one of the oldest spiritual traditions in the world. And the mysteries of that rosary go back to the Eleusinian mysteries, the mysteries of Isis and Osiris, the mysteries of Dionysus and Ariadne. And one of those mysteries is that Christ dying on the cross, life itself, the life of this planet, the green life is nailed to a dead tree by empire, by empire convinced that it's doing right, but convinced that it's putting a criminal to death, right? Justice upheld. That's empire. 
And there at the foot of the cross is the mother. She doesn't look away. Everyone's looked away, not her. And she's got her hands held out. And she's ready to take that body, the dead body of her child life, into her arms and rebirth it. And she can bear witness because she knows she can also rebirth the world. And when we know the world can be reborn, when we really are centered in that, we don't look away. Mm. Yeah, and I feel as if we need that that depth, that well. We need to tap that right now because everywhere we look is (laughs) wrong. You know, what is it, 104 degrees in England today and they don't have any air conditioning and and their fires raging? I mean, look, you don't have to be Cassandra anymore to read the writing on the wall. The the climate, you know, one of the things that takes courage is reading the climate reports. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I, you, you talked about Fatima earlier. We don't need Our Lady of Fatima to tell us that in the next 10 years, we are going to be devastated on this planet by wildfires, floods, and climatological, rapid climatological change that's going to bring tremendous suffering to most parts of the world. What are we doing spiritually to get ready for that? There are a lot of people who imagine that means getting their go bag ready and buying property in New Zealand. (laughs) And I would say that the only go bag you need is to hold the hand of the mother. Because it's like being in a parking, you know, when you get, you know, when you had little ones when they were like three and four and you're in like a big parking lot and you say, you hold my hand and you don't let go. Yep. Because I know how to navigate this situation and you do not. And our mothers, all of our mothers, mothers are always multiplicitous because mothers always know you need more than one in the room, right? Yes. I always say the opposite of God is not goddess. The opposite of God is everything because mothers want all hands on deck. Kuan Yin has 10,000 hands for a reason. And and what she's saying is take one of those 10,000 hands of the mother by any name you want to call her and hold on, learn to hold on to her, learn to trust her and she can guide us through what's coming. I was once with that same psychic and we'd we'd been into... um, Connecticut, we we had we had kind of a wild ride with a film deal and everything. It was kind of fun. And we we're coming back from Connecticut into Grand Central Station in New York on a Friday afternoon at five o'clock. And it was kind of terrifying. There, there were there were so many people in this deep underground tunnel that you couldn't move. It it was just a scrum and a press. And you had a feeling that in it all it would take would be a spark. And it would be chaos and a stampede. It was very frightening. And my psychic friend looked at me and she said, step to the right. I said, what? She said, step to the right. And I realized I could step to the right. And she said, there, that's the door. Push on the wall. And I pushed on the wall and it was the door. And we stepped out into the light of 42nd Street. And I said, how did you know to do that? She said, I don't know. Somebody dead showed up and told me to do it. <laughs> and she said, oh, and there's a smoothie place around the corner. <laughs> We stepped out and we got a smoothie and all was well with the world. And and I say that because when we become in conversation with the mothers, 
with all the mothers, our mothers, and the unseen world, that dark matter of the cosmos. When we get in conversation with it, we learn how to step to the right. We learn how to find the smoothie play. And so people often ask, how can you be of such good cheer when you know it's coming? Because they, well, there's always a smoothie place around the corner. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> we just got to learn. We develop our habit of listening. We develop our habit of conversation and we learn to hold on. You know, that's so beautiful. And this idea of all hands on deck for mothers. I have a very dear group of friends and we call ourselves the fairy godmothers. And that's what we are for one another's that's children. It. That's it. Yeah. That's it. And that's what we all need to be for the world. Exactly. And it's it's not that we have to be the mother of everything in some abstracted mm-hmm. way. We're all going to be called to different kinds of mothering. They're all different kinds of mothers. Do you know? I mean, we know when we meet one, right? We know... Some of them are teachers. Some of them are the nurses smoothing, you know, the foreheads of the dying. Some of them, some of them are, you know, doing odd little things with bats in some cave somewhere off and protecting them. You know, I am the mother of bats. Some people are the mother of this and the mother of that. Mm-hmm. You know, my 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 daughter sometimes says she's the mother of groundhogs, and she joked about this because the groundhogs love her. I mean, to say they love her is an understatement. They charge her. Uh, you'll be with her. And the groundhogs will kind of like hurl themselves at her. <laughs> and one day she was driving home in the middle of a terrible thunderstorm on the highway, you know, six lanes of traffic. And there, panic stricken in the middle of the highway was a groundhog who had gotten stuck in the thunderstorm in the middle of the highway. And my daughter, Sophie, stopped her car, got out in the middle of the thunderstorm with, on a highway, stopped all the traffic picked up the groundhog and ran him off into the woods. And she said, sometimes I think maybe my whole life was about that moment. And I'm not saying that everyone should do that. And I've told my daughter never to do it again. She had to get (laughs) rabies shots. And it was really, you know, (laughs) but there are, we're all going to have a moment like that. That's a mother moment. That's the mother who can lift the car up. Yep. She said she didn't think about it. She just got out and stopped traffic and rescued it. And we know what it is to, to step into those moments. And what if we all did? What if we all did? What if we all did? So your the book that's coming out this fall that I'm sure has been a labor of love for you for a while is called Taking Back the Magic, Getting to Know the Dead. And on your website, you wrote, they endured, we endure, and we'll find our way through the times ahead with their help. I wonder if you could talk about that. Sure. Well, when I was a young mother with, you know, two small children and working full time, I began to tap into the fairy godmothers on the other side. And it's a long story that I tell in this book, but I began, you know, I was a practicing Buddhist with my husband. And, you know, I had sort of, you know, external spiritual life, but my real spiritual life was in the dark with the dead. And I couldn't have told you what I was doing in the beginning. I just began talking to them. And the more I talked to them, the more they showed up. And it also, it ultimately culminated with meeting the psychic 20 years later. But what I began to realize about the dead is how much they love us. Because what the dead see is the long story. 
they have that perspective. And that perspective they can share with us. And, you know, there's some talk, there's a lot of talk these days about ancestral healing. And unfortunately, the way it's talked about is often within a patriarchal system that imagines this kind of linearity where you're at the end of some horrible traumatic story and you have to fix it or else. And what I see is that kind of paradigm makes people feel burdened, martyred, and heroic. Mm-hmm. And it and it and in fact, it's not that the dead need to be rescued, it's that we need to be rescued. And the dead can help us. For instance, I have finally, at age 60, realized it is time to be sober from sugar, that my true addiction. <laughs> and, you know, I've, 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 I've avoided this conversation with myself, you know, right nourishment, the right diet, exercise, care. No, no. <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> and who did I ask for help getting sober from sugar? I thought about it for a long time. And the person I asked was my best friend's mother. And she was a beautiful woman, just beautiful. I loved her, funny, warm, interesting. And she died of alcoholism at age 54, abject in an apartment with no furniture and only broken vodka bottles. Mm. And her esophagus burst from drinking so much. She was one of the worst alcoholics I've ever known. And it was heartbreaking to see somebody I loved so much destroyed so terribly by this addiction. Rita was her name. And Rita has been my great help in sobriety. I talk with her every morning. She's my sponsor on my sugar sobriety, day 34. And (laughs) thank you. (laughs) And, and, uh, but Rita, of course, who better to help us get sober than the person who died of drink? Who better to help us heal from patriarchy than the patriarchs? That's what my book is about. It's about my healing with my father and my vision for healing a patriarchy because they've seen it. They've seen the mistake. You know, my psychic friend, she said, a lot of people die. And the first thing they say, excuse me, is, oh, shit. Like, if I'd known that, I would have acted differently. (laughs) And they want to make amends and they want to fix things and they want to help out. Um, So a lot of what I teach people to do is that the dead are real and specific and concrete. And how do you have a relationship with them that's fun? And oh, the stories that emerge. Oh my gosh. Extraordinary stories. Extraordinary stories. And I think I've had that experience. My beloved aunt recently passed and I, um, she lived in Ireland. And so we Zoomed weekly for about a year and a half and um, walking towards that portal. And then connecting with her as she has walked through it. Um, And my sense in my own mystical experience in my, is that there is this, there's both a lightness and an understanding that comes once we pass. And um, also there is a, there's a true, like being here is a gift that I think we don't fully, you know, we're, we're really, good at talking about the catastrophe and the suffering, but that 
that souls line up and want to be in this, having the exact experience that we're having now, feet on the dirt and breathing the air and sunshine on our skin and, and the body. And so there's both of those things, I sense. Well, my favorite movie of all time, my only scripture, and I think it's the wisest film ever made, is Groundhog Day with Bill Murray. And, <laughs> you know, and, and Groundhog Day, you know, he he's such a kind of creep in the beginning, right? And he, you know, he goes through these periods, you know, he thinks he's a god, he goes through despair, he 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 keeps stepping in the same damn puddles lifetime after lifetime. <laughs> Each day is a lifetime, he's always making the same mistakes. But slowly he learns to stop making mistakes. Slowly he's, the amazing thing is at a certain moment when he's given up everything, all aspect of control, has no control over the situation. He finally says, oh, maybe I'll just take a piano lesson. And the piano teacher has been waiting for him. The first person he's met as he walked out of his bed and breakfast, she's been waiting for 10,000 lifetimes for him to show up at her door. And suddenly he starts playing the piano and suddenly he starts just playing and suddenly he's making music and suddenly love is coming to him. And what does he say at the end of the movie? Let's live here. Well, that's what we say. Ultimately, I'm going to come back again and again and again, because why every moment of every day is a reunion with those I love. And, you know, right now, you and I, I mean, I know that we must be genetically related from Ireland, but I also know that we are reunited. We are reunited in soul reunion of friendship. And what a pleasure and joy that is. And we ultimately, you know, sometimes people will say to me, particularly those who come from a Buddhist orientation, you know, poor Buddha, you know, his mother died in childbirth and he got so freaked out about it. He thought, I just want to extinction, nirvana, extinction. No, <laughs> you're coming back. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> you're coming back. Everyone's coming back. But how do you want to come back? And I want to come back. I think about that a lot. I think, what do I want when I'm reborn? I want to be reborn to parents who can recognize me, who can see me. I see my heart. And who know when great-grandmother is reborn. My husband and I were blessed to believe to have this faith with us when we met each other. And I write about this in my book as well. It's not our first lifetime together. You know, we've had so many. We're always doing this. And I think we always end up start having babies nine months later after we meet. But that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> our kids want to come through quickly. Right. Too. And but, you know, your children have other mothers. They have other mothers who've loved them. They have other stories inside them. And when we recognize that and can honor it, it's very powerful. They come, our children arrive with work to do too. Absolutely. Yep. And I think, you know, our children teach us that because, you know, each of my children came through so formed and different from one another. Mm. I didn't expect that beautiful concept, you know, that's why I always said about when my children were in school, when they were, you know, young, I just said, I just wanted a teacher who would see them, right. Who would see them for who they are. 
I know, you know, it's so funny. My daughter has had a lot of success with her writing and her thinking, and she's 28 years old. And a lot of people come up to me in town and they say, oh, my goodness, your daughter is such an extraordinary writer and thinker. I said, you should have seen her when she was three. (laughs) (laughs) She must have been a very, very interesting soul to to guide and to watch. Well, they all are. Yes. And and you as a mother know this. And and what if we looked at all children? I mean, in indigenous cultures, children are treasured because they've come through the veil and they bring with them all kinds of insights and memories. And in our culture, we suppress them. And in indigenous culture, they're cultivated. And that young people, you know, this kind of hierarchical culture we live in says, you know, older people are more important than younger people. I don't feel that way at all. You know, who knows where the wisdom is coming from? Who knows who's my teacher today? Mm-hmm. Who knows who's, who knows? Um, who knows who my mothers have been? So that I can, I can receive guidance all kinds of unexpected places and ways. But I think children... Children need to be treasured and listened to and seen, right? Absolutely. They have a lot to offer us. And young people, too. I mean, young people at this moment have a lot to offer. Absolutely. And are coming in at a moment where, I mean, one idea I have is that, you know, I feel like younger and younger right now are, are going to be holding more and more. And so we, they come in hopefully with a wisdom or a consciousness that you and I probably don't have. <laughs> exactly. Know? And my job is to show up and say, what do you need? Exactly. Yep. Um, Perdita, I could talk to you for hours. I sense, you know, I, I in the show notes, I will certainly link. Um, I know a lot of people listening are going to want to read your books and, and I know you have courses available and I'll link all of those. I just wonder someone who I, you have great freedom in that, it seems as if you draw from many traditions, but you're not boxed in by them. (laughs) Um, And so what if someone listening perhaps is not feeling that free? Um, Where do you suggest that, you know, this idea of connecting to the earth, connecting to the mother, extracting ourselves from whatever programming, you know, we had growing up, where does one begin? Is there a practice? Is there an idea that you can offer? Mm-hmm. Well, there are two things. One is always go slow. There's all the time in the world. So there's no rush with any of this. We get into such trouble by going too fast mm-hmm. and there's no need to be grandiose because you don't have to do all of it. You just have to do a little bit. That's your bit. So, I mean, I think as human beings, we tend to be fast and grandiose. So if we're slow and small, everything's going to be fine. I began my practice with the dead by very small and very slow. And when I teach people to work with the dead, I begin by, you know, ask for help getting a parking space. Ask for help getting a human being on the other end of the phone. You don't have to start with your sugar addiction. Took me a while to get here. (laughs) (laughs) So what happens is we slowly build our confidence working with the dead. And, and I, and it's interesting, a number of indigenous leaders have said to me like, Oh, the way you talk is, is the same way that indigenous people talk. And I say, well, I don't want to be appropriational. I am a conscious of being a white European and what my genetic people have done on this earth. But when we get, 
to the ground, to the dark, what I call the dark, the dirt, and the dead, then we get the place where we're all doing the same thing. And we can find our way back without being appropriational through the dark. Now, I do teach, my husband and I are the founders of the Way of the Rose, which is a non-denominational, radically non-denominational, utterly feral um, <laughs> spiritual community devoted to the rosary and the earth and the lady by any name you want to call her. People from all different religious traditions find us. We have people who are practicing Sufis and Muslims, Jews. We have people who are ex-Catholics and people who are current Catholics. We have Protestants, Mormons, everything in between, Hindus, Buddhists, Zen masters, everybody's showing up in devotion to the mother. And it's one way. We're not, we're not going to heal the earth with monocultures of either thought or plants. We're going to heal the earth with diversity. So we're offering one way. And my husband and I are working on a book, though, about what does spiritual community look like outside of patriarchy? What does it look like to create circles instead of lines? And so everything at Way of the Rose is free. There are no gurus, teachers, masters, or levels of authority. Zero. You can come to one meeting once and then start a meeting. It's, we've, we've, my husband and I have studied AA and 12-step spirituality at length because it's such a radical uh, concept of spiritual community that has no property, no only friendship, that values what does it mean to really cultivate spiritual friendship. And so that, that is a community that we offer for free <laughs> and anyone can come and participate at the Way of the Rose. And there are no rules, no badges, no entrance exams, no funny hats. What a beautiful, um, what a really beautiful offering and a space you're creating um, in this world. I thank you for that. And um, I sense that a lot of people listening will We'll want to take a deeper dive into all that you have written and offer and teach. And so I want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. I sense you are, I, I am um, in this lifetime, I'm from the Celtic tradition. And so I would, I sense this Anamkara in you, right? This soul friend, I agree that, that we've had a conversation or many before. And so I just want to thank you, especially at this time when you're holding vigil for your father-in-law, that you took time to be with me today and to offer your wisdom to the world. Thank you, Perdita. Thank you, Avine, so much. And yes, I think we've spent a lot of time in Ireland together. I can feel it. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.